Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 7. We're going to take up in this audio the story of the Pharisees complaining because the disciples weren't washing their hands. And we're going to look at Jewish ritualism, Jewish legalism, and see what Jesus' attitude toward it. And, and as you can imagine, his attitude toward it was not very happy. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 2, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Now, some context here. This is just after Jesus and his disciples had returned from feeding the 5,000 on the other side of the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. After they left that place where they fed the 5,000, they came across in a boat, came back to Capernaum, which is where they probably were right now, Capernaum. Robertson says probably. I'm pretty sure it's Capernaum. And Jesus had to walk on the water because it was a big storm. And then Peter walked on the water to Jesus to get to Jesus. And then Jesus calmed the storm, and here they are back in Capernaum. Now, the, in the book of John, we'll see that Jesus did a lot of teaching at this point, And he started talking about he was the bread of life, I guess, playing off on the fact that he just fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. So he starts talking about the bread of life. Then he says, you've got to eat my flesh in order to believe. He started teaching them some hard words. And the disciples started grumbling, oh, I don't know if we can go along with this. And and the crowd sort of turned against him when Jesus started putting some of the requirements of discipleship on them. But at any rate, we're now here in Capernaum, and we see that Jesus has not gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. John tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 was right before Passover. Je Jesus didn't go down there. And John chapter 7, 1 says this, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. And Robertson places that right at the beginning here of the return from Bethsaida to Capernaum after the feeding of the 5,000. So here's Jesus. He's back in Capernaum. He's got all the crowds. They've already come to meet him. They figured out that he wasn't going to be there over in Bethsaida, and so they come back to Capernaum. So he's got these crowds, and now they're starting to grumble at his teaching. And now the Pharisees are complaining because Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands when they ate. Now, who were these Pharisees and scribes? Scribes and Pharisees are put together so often in a phrase, Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, that we tend to think they're the same people. Actually, they're not. The scribes were a professional group. The Pharisees were a religious group. How can we distinguish that? The scribes did professional duties. They copied scriptures. They numbered and enrolled troops. They did census activities. They took care of the temple finances. They performed accounting functions. They took care of temple finances. They counted donated money. They paid temple workers. They served as secretaries. They would take dictation for those writing letters. They would write out legal decrees. Later on in their history, they actually became lawyers and judges. They kind of progressed in their profession, I guess. And since they wrote out so many legal decrees, I guess they learned the law and they became lawyers and judges. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a religious group. They were concerned about maintaining the oral tradition, the so-called oral tradition that passed down through Moses orally all the way down through Jewish history unto the Pharisees. Their main emphasis was, we've got to keep separate from the Gentiles. Now, it turns out that a lot of scribes were indeed Pharisees. A lot of Pharisees were scribes. There was an, a, a, an interlocking, an intersection of the two groups, Pharisees and scribes, but they were not necessarily the same people. You could have a scribe who was not a Pharisee, and you could have a Pharisee who was not a scribe. But there was a big overlap. Now, they came up to Jerusalem and complained about Jesus not washing his hands. Now... What was that all about? 
Well, the Pharisees were famous for, as I said, maintaining the traditions of the elders after they, after the Babylonian captivity, which was 586 B.C. The rabbis in Babylonia started making meticulous rules and regulations governing daily life. And, of course, these oral traditions were finally put into writing in the Mishnah about 200 A.D., which was after our time here. Now, the Jews didn't pretend that these traditions came from Moses. They openly said that the authority that this oral tradition had came from the scribes who wrote down this authority. It was outside of Moses. And so the Jews didn't complain about that when Jesus made a big distinction between the law of Moses and the traditions of the Pharisees. Well, one of their traditions was you got to wash your hands before you eat. Now, you know, I can hear my mother saying when I was a kid, you need to wash your hands before you eat. But somehow that just wasn't all that big a deal. But to the Jews, it was a big deal. Not washing one's hands before one ate was considered a horrible, flagitious crime. Here's a quote from John Gill, quoting Rabbi Eliezer. Whoever eats bread without washing of hands is, this, is as if he lay with a whore. Actually, that was a different rabbi. But you got the idea. And then, the, and then Rabbi Eliezer Whoever despises washing of hands shall be rooted out of the world. Can you imagine you don't wash your hands before you eat and your mother says, You're sleeping with a whore. I wish you were dead, taken out of the world. I mean, that's how serious these guys were about this. So these Pharisees are really upset. They even had this idea that it was a sort of an evil spirit, a boogeyman, a boogeyman named Shibta, who would sit on the unwashed hands and on the food and then would leave something very dangerous behind so that when you ate the food, that dangerous thing would hurt the body, which is pretty ridiculous, but that's what they thought. And so because of not washing their hands, Jesus' enemies want to kill him. I hope this gives you an idea of what bastards the Pharisees were. I'll never forget the time I was at one of these wannabe Jewish meetings, Messianic Jewish meetings, where 99.99% of the people there are Gentiles, but they want to get back in touch with their Jewish roots, even though they're Gentiles. And this woman there, a secretary for a Messianic teacher that was on TV all the time, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Joseph Good, I think his name was, she sits there and calmly tells me how what good people the Pharisees were. And that thing traumatized me, and that's why I'm calling them the bastards that they are. They were murdering bastards. I cannot emphasize that enough. Now, Mark, in chapter 3, verse 3, verses 3 through 4, and I'm sorry, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, Mark adds some details for his Gentile readers. It's a parenthetical remark. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders is that oral tradition that was written down in the Mishnah in 200 AD that was passed down outside of the law, outside of the written law. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Some manuscripts have dining ca couches. Some leave it out. The NIV leaves it out. doesn't matter. The idea is that the Pharisees washed everything. We're not going to let one atom of Gentile filth get into our bodies, by golly. Now, of course... I, need, I don't need to point out, I guess, that the, this is all in the tradition of the elders. This is not in the law of Moses. John Gill has an interesting remark. He says the Sadducees didn't wash, but Mark says all the Jews washed, so I don't know what that means. 
I'm not learned enough in Jewish customs to know that, but I just mention it here in case somebody might know. We go to Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders. Instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands, he, Jesus, answered them, the Pharisees, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. The commands of men, of course, is the tradition of the elders passed down by the scribes. Men did that. God didn't do that. Doctrines means true doctrines, teaching from God. Now, Jesus here is basically using a soldier old lady argument. He doesn't really defend his disciples against breaking the elders' traditions. He turns around and accuses the scribes and Pharisees of breaking God's laws. In other words, he immediately went on the attack. Instead of trying to defend the practice of, the, of his disciples, he, 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 because he, actually there was no defense. They weren't washing their hands, and Jesus didn't care. But instead of saying, look, we're not keeping your traditions because they're stupid, and we're not going to wash our hands. Instead of getting into that, he turned it around on the Pharisees. He went on the offense instead of being on the defense. He says, look, you guys, you, we, yeah, we're breaking traditions of men. Big deal. You guys are breaking the law of God. Now, Jesus had the temerity to actually call the Pharisees hypocrites to their face. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. And then he talks about Isaiah talking about them, about the people honoring God with their lips but their heart is far from me. That's the definition of a hypocrite. You say something, but you don't feel it on the inside. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who thought the Pharisees were hypocrites. John Gill cites a rabbi, Rabbi Nathan, who said the same thing. Quote, If the hypocrites of the world were divided into ten parts, nine of them would belong to Jerusalem and one to the rest of the world. So their hypocrisy was well known. This commands of men... You honor me with your lips. You worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. This is the way Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown describes those commands of men. Quote, the driveling nature of their multitudinous observances. Beautiful. We move on in Mark now, chapter 7, verse 8 through 13. Jesus tells the Pharisees, Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. Now, you know, some traditions are good. Paul talks about apostolic traditions, the traditions of the apostles, and he wanted the church, early churches to follow him. No problem with that, but it's the tradition of men. Traditions through apostles which came from God are okay, but traditions of men are not okay, especially this oral law, this so-called oral law of the scribes. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men, and there's a contrast. Command of God, that's Moses' law, the tradition of men, that's the oral law of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 9, he also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. So it's not only that you've added to the law, you contradict the law. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Verse 11, but you say, you Pharisees say, you scribes say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever benefits you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Now, korban is the transliteration from the Hebrew that means, and Mark tells us what it is, that is a gift, 
and it's a gift committed to the temple. What the Pharisees would do, they would say, you can designate certain monies, and that money is now reserved for the temple, and you can't invade the corpus, if you will, to take care of your old mother and father who don't have any money. Well, obviously that's unjust, and it's, and it's disgusting. Now here one might ask, well, why would a parent do that? Excuse me, a child do that? Or Pharisee, why would any Jew do that? I mean, he's still got to pay the money. Either he pays it to his parents or he pays it to the temple. Why wouldn't he just pay it to his parents? Well, because, according to John Gill, a Corban gift could not be revoked or converted to any other use. That's true. All you had to do was to say, Corban, and the gift was untouchable. That's true. But my NIV study Bible explains that problem away. Corban money or or goods were dedicated to the temple, but it would not necessarily have to go to the temple. It's just dedicated to the temple. John Gill says this, a Corban gift could not be appropriated to any other use, so his substance after such a vow could not be applied to the relief of his parents, though he was not obliged by it to give it for the use of the temple, but might keep it himself or bestow upon others. So what kind of a gift is that? You give it to the temple, but you can keep it for yourself or give it to somebody else. So that was pretty unjust. This Corban comes from Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 2. Moses told the leaders of the Israelites' tribes, this is what the Lord has commanded. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word, he must do whatever he has promised. So you're supposed to keep your vows. That's not Corban, actually. That's, you're supposed to keep your vow. Now this Corban, as John Gill says, was a tradition of the elders and was not in the Old Testament law. This was made up. And this tradition was so harsh, John Gill goes on to say, it was so harsh that Jew Jewish rabbis were open to a dissolution of the vow. If the person made the vow was a wise man and he needed to honor his parents, in other words, he needed to feed his parents before they starved to death, he could break his Corban vow. Well, if even the rabbis realized how, some of the rabbis re realized how harsh this tradition was, Jesus, that makes Jesus' charge perfectly true. And we need to point out that this dissolution was hard to get. If you declared Corban, you would have to go to the rabbis and go through a big legal procedure in order to get the money untied so you could give it to your parents. So the hardship was still there. The injustice was still there. And it might be the rabbis softened up their views on Corban because of Jesus's just criticism of the practice. This last opt-out provision, you can opt out of Corban if you are a wise man and if your parents need honoring. That might have been because of Jesus's criticism, John Gill says. But at any rate, it's very clear. This is just one example of their laws. And notice that Mark says that Jesus said, you do many other such things like that. I'm not an act, uh, expert like Arnold Fruchtingbaum on the Pharisaic law. It's on my do list to read him one time, and and Edersheim, to read those two got their Jewish Christians, and they've got they they've delved into all the Pharisaical traditions and such, and you can get a good feel for what the Pharisees were doing. But uh, you can just remember Corban is is a good example of it right here that Jesus gives us. We go into Mark. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now notice he's turned from the Pharisees, and now he's talking to all the crowds. And he's going, he's, he has a teaching moment. 
because of what the Pharisees had said to him. So now he's going to publicly rebuke the Pharisees in front of the crowd. When he talks about nothing that goes into a person from outside, he's talking about food. Food can't defile you, make you dirty. But the things that come out of a person and what defile him, that's what comes out of your heart, out of your mouth. Why did he turn from the Pharisees to the crowd? Well, it could be because he didn't think it was worth his time to deal with such stubborn and obstinate people. Could be. And, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make the point that the discourse between the Pharisees and Jesus was not private. It was overheard by the people in the crowd. It was within earshot, and I think that's probably true. But he, Jesus turns from talking directly to the Pharisees and speaks to the crowd. Now, this idea of what goes into a person defiles a person. Here's a rabbinic quote from my rabbinic expert, John Gill. Quote, forbidden meats are unclean themselves and defile both body and soul, which is absurd. And Jesus points it out. Now, I might say here that there are some Christians who say, keep the Old Testament dietary laws and you lose weight and you look happy and you feel good. I wouldn't doubt that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's a diet. But to start saying that you need to do that for spiritual reasons, not for physical reasons, but for spiritual reasons, then you are nothing but a legalist and stay away from me. If you want to get on an Old Testament diet, that's fine. But don't start telling Christians they can't eat shrimp. That is a total perversion of a, a total that that exhibits total ignorance of the distinction between the old mosaic covenant and the new covenant of jesus so we move on now to mark chapter 7 verse 16 jesus says if anyone has ears to hear he should listen now what that means of course is you can hear on two levels you can hear the sound waves impinging upon your eardrums or you can hear and as your eardrums vibrate, the words go down into go up into your brain or into your heart. You understand it, in other words. So if you could understand what I'm saying, listen to me. Now, this verse has doubtful manuscript authority. The NIV leaves it completely out. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets. The NIV Study Bible note says the verse is present in a majority of Greek manuscripts, but it is not in the most ancient Greek manuscripts. Well, that, of course, goes to the big textual battle between the majority text people, the King James people, and the New King James people, and uh, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, and all who use the, other, the older text. I'm not going to get into that battle. i got enough fish to fry. Mark 7, verse 17 through 19. When he, Jesus, went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding, i.e., are you as lacking in understanding as these Pharisees? Are you as thick-headed and block-headed as the scribes and Pharisees? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and it is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Now, when it says in verse 17, he went into the house, this is probably the house at Capernaum, his headquarters, Simon Peter's and Andrew's house, where Simon Peter's mother-in-law lived. And once again, as he often did, in fact, as he did before, he left on that feeding of the 5,000 trip. He had the disciples in the house, and he explained all those eight parables in the boat, seven or eight parables in the boat, that he taught from the boat on the Sea of Galilee to the crowd standing on the shore near Capernaum. And so they, they asked him about the parable. Now, notice that Jesus' response is, are you lacking in understanding? Jesus, I'm telling you, he was a hard teacher. He didn't put up with nonsense. He wasn't one of these wussy-pussy American college professors who won't give a seat to somebody because they might cry and go to the president and might put a bad, give you a bad evaluation. Buddy, I'm telling you, there's just been a huge scandal here. 
of people buying their way into elite universities. Well, before even without the buying, there's great inflation everywhere because people are teachers don't have the authority to teach the students because they don't act like they know anything, and and the students' parents are going to take their contributions to the endowment away, and you know all this corruption that's in American colleges and all. Compare that to Jesus. Those disciples loved Jesus. They were willing to die for him. Thomas Didymus, Downing Thomas, he when he heard that Lazarus was sick and Jesus was going, going was, was dead and Jesus was going to raise him from the dead, which of course took him to Bethany, close to Jerusalem, where the scribes and Pharisees were going to kill him. Thomas Didymus says, "Well, let's go down there and die with Didym- with, with uh, Lazarus. We'll die too." And of course, we know what Peter said: "No, no, even if I should die, I won't leave you." And all the other apostles said the same thing. That was at the Last Supper. They loved him, but Jesus was not easy with them. He was not easy at all. Hey, don't you understand as much as the Pharisees? And he he also seemed kind of puzzled that his disciples wouldn't understand what he's talking about. He expected to be understood. He expected to be believed. He taught with authority. Now, what did he mean? This parable, I don't know why they even call it a parable. Why Mark calls it a parable, because it's so easy. You know, food doesn't make you dirty because it goes into your stomach your stomach processes it and then it is eliminated in fact adam clark has a very inelegant translation of the greek he says it's cast into the privy it's gone and you're not made dirty by that but by golly what goes into your heart that'll make you dirty now notice the remark in mark chapter 7 verse 19 thus he made he declared all foods clean by saying that what goes into the mouth does not defile a person. All foods, that would include things in violation of the Mosaic dietary laws, like shrimp, like pork. Well, that brings up an interesting theological problem because in Matthew 5, Jesus said not one jot or tittle or stroke, not one stroke of the law is going to pass away until all is accomplished. Not take all is accomplished means when he dies on the cross and does away with the Old Testament law. And then, of course, you can eat shrimp and pork. But this incident up there at Capernaum was before the cross. And yet it says, Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, I think the way out of that problem is is that Jesus didn't declare all foods clean now. But it's proleptic. It's referring to the future. It's referring to what he was going to do on the cross. So he declared all foods clean that were going to be clean, declared clean, after all was accomplished when he died on the cross and did away with the Old Testament law. Otherwise, you've got Jesus actually overturning a law of Moses before he died on the cross, and I don't think that's going to work. Now, when the disciples, when I guess it was when the disciples went into the house, we learn from the parallel passage in Matthew 12, Matthew verse, chapter 15, verse 12, then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard this statement? No kidding, disciples. He called them a hypocrite. <laughs> so... The disciples, what was their motive for telling Jesus that? Maybe they were afraid, or maybe they were just being wise. We better get out of here. These Pharisees are really mad about what you said, and and maybe we better make plans for escape. Or maybe they were being compassionate and were concerned that Jesus had lost the chance to win them over to the gospel. Well, if they thought that, they were pretty dumb, I think. I think the real reason is they were afraid, but it's hard to say. John Gill gives those three optional possible emotions. Jesus replies in Matthew 15, verse 13, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. And what he's basically saying, don't worry about the Pharisees. God's going to pull them up by the roots. (laughs) Don't you worry about it. Now, this is my observation on this verse. 
This should not be used to discourage contending for the faith and fighting those who are opposed. Well, in fact, in Matthew 15, verse 14, Jesus says, Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. In other words, don't worry about these guys. Don't worry about the traditions of the elders. Don't follow them. They'll lead you right over the cliff into a pit. Now, leave them alone because they're going to be uprooted. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to not fight for the faith. Jesus continued to fight the Pharisees until he died. He didn't leave them alone in that sense. But what it means is leave them alone and don't follow them. Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples here. Don't worry. I'm, we're going to take my father is going to take care of these Pharisees. He's going to uproot them. I don't care how deep their roots are. He's going to pull them up by the roots. No matter how entrenched your pharisaical opposition is, Jesus is eventually going to root out, root them out. So don't worry. He says, leave them alone. That's the same thing as saying, don't cast your pearls before swine, which Jesus said on another occasion. We cannot force someone to believe in Christ, no matter how holy we are, no matter how well-reasoned their arguments are. So leave them alone. Don't try to witness to them anymore. Now, Adam Clark said the same thing that I just said. This does not mean leave them alone in the sense of just let them wreak havoc on, on believers. Adam Clark says, quote, These words have been sadly misunderstood. Some have quoted them to prove that blind and deceitful teachers should not be pointed out to the people, nor the people warned against them, and that men should abide in the communion of a corrupt church. No. Yeah, I, can, I can see somebody saying, Well, we don't have church discipline here because Jesus said to leave the Pharisees alone especially if they're giving lots of money to the building fund and to my salary. So I'm going to leave them alone and just let them spread their corruption all through the church because I don't want them to stop putting money in the collection plate. That's not what it means. It means don't follow them. It doesn't mean don't protect yourself against them or don't call them out. If we're not careful, if we follow them, if we're not careful, instead of us converting them, they will convert us. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 15 through 16, Peter replied to Jesus, explain this parable to us. In Mark, it says the disciples asked for explanation. Matthew points out that Peter was probably speaking for the other disciples when they asked him. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus was pretty tough on the disciples. Well, a trainer has to be tough on his trainees, especially when the trainees are facing death like the disciples were soon going to be facing. Death. Persecution and death. He had to be hard on them. It's just like the Marines have got to be hard on their on their recruits at Paris Island. Gill says that Jesus spoke, quote, with some warmth of spirit and resentment at their stupidity. And then he says the disciples were, quote, so wretchedly stupid. <laughs> but Jesus didn't hold that against them. And this is in a different place. Matthew 13, verse 11, in answering parable, in explaining parables, he said, He answered them, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them, to the bad guys. So Jesus was more than willing to explain, but he still is trying to tell them, Look, guys, you need to shape up here and quit being spiritually obtuse. Going on to Mark 7, verse 20, verses Verses 20 through 23. Then he said, What comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. That just about covers it. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So again, Jesus is emphasizing the eternal. The Pharisees were emphasizing the external. And... Believe me, there's a lot of Christian Phariseeism, Phariseeism out there. you got people talking about the external, the external, the external all the time, and they don't talk about the internal. They're legalists, and you need to run as fast as you can. Matthew adds to that 
list false witnesses. Mark leaves that out. The false witness that comes out of people's hearts. Lies. Notice that how many times that sexual immorality is mentioned. Mark mentions sexual immoralities. That's one. Adulteries. That's two. Promiscuity. That's three. So of the list, sexual sins are the most prominent, and that more or less matches the experience of the human race. If you talk about the sins that people commit, you, I guarantee you sexual sin is going to be there of greater or lesser degree amongst almost everybody in the human race. It is the number one thing that the world, the flesh, and the devil like to screw up. And basically the answer to that is that sexual activity between a man and a woman is confined to a man and a woman bound together in bonds of holy matrimony for life. That is perfectly okay. But not otherwise. Now, what kind of sexual immorality could he be talking about? Well, first of all, adultery is sexual immorality but with involving a married person. Uh, promiscuity is, I think, is fornications in the old-fashioned King James, if I remember correctly. Promiscuity, that just means illicit sex between single people. Sexual immorality can mean anything. It can be watching pornography. It can be bestiality. It can be homosexuality. It can be, I can't think of anything else right now, but that's the sort of stuff that comes out of the heart, comes out of the heart, and that will defile you. And if people around here are talking about, oh, I'm in a loving relationship with my homosexual partner, if you don't think that you're being defiled, well, then you are the biggest moron that has ever disgraced the planet Earth. You're hurting yourself. You're killing yourself. You're defiling yourself. And I don't care how many Supreme Court decisions they are, and I don't care how many Gallup polls that show that two-thirds of the American public think that it's perfectly okay. No, you are defiling yourself. And you don't believe me, look at the majority of homosexuals who practice things such as fisting and rimming. Look it up on the Internet and see if you are not defiled, if you would not be defiled by such a practice if you practiced it. All right, that's the end of Mark chapter 7 and the story of the parable of what goes into the stomach does not defile you, but what comes out of the heart does. We'll start with Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Next audio is Jesus escapes from Galilee and goes to Syrophoenicia, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Hope you enjoyed this audio.